Shooters Connection offers products for competition shooters by competition shooters. With over 80 years of combined competition shooting experience, Shooters Connection is staffed by master and grandmaster shooters who live the shooting sports every day. Every day. We offer same-day shipping. Shooters Connection also sponsors over 100 of your matches every single year. So when it comes to finding everything you need to compete as a beginner or a seasoned grandmaster, Shooters Connection is the only name you need to know. Online at ShootersConnectionStore.com. All right, welcome back to the Hit Factor. Okay, it's uh, going. Jeff's talking over me, but that's fine. Oh, that would be a nice uh, intro. But, so we we need to give like some uh, disclaimers. My internet <laughs> at about ten minutes ago was reading at hundred and ten kilobytes per second. So maybe this you guys will hear this. Maybe you won't. Uh, we're gonna pray that uh, my internet will stay fast. But this is the hit factor. Uh, we have the whole crew on tonight. Myself, Jeremy Reed, Jeff Cawthon, and Jared the Sasquatch Fox uh is on all our gms in some sort of division or category uh but maybe those are maybe those are legacy gms for some of us maybe we should be bumped down i don't know Hmm. yeah like i feel like we need to get everybody qualified thanks Uh, for qualifying us we are we have we have Missed a couple recordings, but this show, as you guys heard, uh, is sponsored by Shooters Connection. Uh, so see the link at the bottom of wherever you're listening to this at and follow that if you need to buy anything shooting related. Uh, they got it. I just, they had an EGW part, Ambi Safety, that I needed for a gun, and I just ordered that this last week. Uh, so they've been great to be able to just go find stuff that you need. And they usually have it. Um, Again, like, comment, and subscribe on on YouTube if you're on there. Uh, yeah, that does help us. If you do, uh, if we can get some interaction, uh, the Discord links should be live now, and you can join the Discord. And there's some good conversations going on there. Uh, and so tonight we are yeah. well. We have to talk about one thing that really none of us really want to talk about, uh, but it's what is going on. Uh, in the world of USPSA right now, and that is Nationals has changed venue mid-year. It was in Cameo, supposed to be, this was, it was going to be limited open production and PCC were supposed to be in Cameo, Colorado, October like 14th through the 17th or something like that, around that time. And with some drama that has happened, they have been moved to Talladega, Alabama. And they've been split up to where it's now open and limited one weekend. And then the following weekend is production and PCC paired together. Um, it's honestly, to me, like, it's just a huge bummer. Like, it, it just, like, it sucks. Like, changing yeah. venue middle of the year. Like, I know J- uh, Jared had, like, just booked, like, uh, Airbnb, I'm pretty sure. And so, like, now it's like, okay, do I can I get out of that? You got to try to find something else if he's going to the next one. And uh, I know for me, like, I had a trip. I was going, you guys know, I was going mule deer hunting right after that match. Uh, and now that match is 15 hours the wrong direction. And so, for me, it means I, I can't shoot nationals. Like, I, I can't bail on the, the mule deer hunt. So, yeah. uh 
it's kind of put my season just in a weird place because now, like, without nationals, I have area three on my schedule, and that's it for the year. And so it's kind of, I don't know, it's weird not having a nationals to be preparing for. Uh, but that's what you're trying to get ready for. So then you're just kind of shooting just to shoot. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, so that, like, that's kind of, the, come with your pre-state. you know, do you, do I fill it in with some other matches, um, that I, like, honestly, I just, I care less about, uh, like that, that's not a knock on any match. It's just, it's not a nationals. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a little bit just in limbo as far as what the rest of my season is going to look like. Obviously last year I cut my season short kind of on purpose. Uh, and so then this year it's feels like it's getting cut short again, not really on purpose. Um, not really anything I can do about it. Um, so that just like, like that part of it sucks. I know Jeff's a little bit in limbo as far as does he want to go shoot a match that's built around PCC and production at the same time, which sounds like, like it's like the worst pairing in the world, like to put, yeah, like that's pretty, that's pretty bad. That's Their justification bad. for doing that was that they looked at the entries for the the match when all the divisions were together, and that gave the most even split uh, for entries to split it that to put limited and open together in production and PCC, so that like the the competitors number, like I guess if they had done production limited, maybe the numbers would have been skewed one direction or the other. I don't know. I didn't look what that is. So, okay. Okay. So they took like the most irrelevant factor. I, I mean, like, and I they used the, that to determine how to split the matchup. Like the most irrelevant for, from a competition standpoint, uh, they took that and that's what they used. Yeah. If, if, if they could have gotten it, as long as they could get everyone in the match that was already registered, I think the optics should have stayed together and the iron should have stayed together. I think you'll have a better match that way. It's just like, I think of what a rifle is in this game. And just like, you know, those stages are going to either get built to challenge the rifle or to challenge the pistol. And it would be really easy for those stages to just. Yeah. I mean like the most natural pairing from like anybody's perspective would be open and PCC. Like those are the like open is the the division that can most yeah. easily compete not easily but can most compete with PCC like if you put something that challenges PCC open is the most like the division that can have a chance of being able to do the same thing um, and whereas but you paired PCC with production gun like the hardest gun to build stages that are entertaining for both divisions. Cause that's, I mean, that's where we're at. Like th- those two divisions are so drastically far apart that building stages that are interesting for both at the same time, it, like you can't do it. Um, yeah. Uh, and so I think that's put Jeff in a, like, no, you don't impossible. really want to go. And it's, it's, yeah, it's either going, it's either going to suck yeah. for both divisions or it's going to suck for one of them real bad. Like, and I know, like, lower level PCC shooters probably right. won't care. Uh, you know, they won't care if it's a hoser match uh, for them. But 
but guys who are there to compete like for real with PCC and like try to win a nationals, like they're going to hate it. They're going to hate it. If, if it's a decent match for production. So I think you mentioned it too. Well, right there though, is that it's, it'll be really easy for that match to suck for both. Like half of the stages be like reasonable production stages, what you would expect for, you know, iron sights with a pistol. And then the other half to end up being like, actual challenging stages for a rifle, which could easily be just excessive for a pistol. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, you, it's, you, if it's a challenging stage for a rifle, it, it'd be damn near impossible. Well, with, yeah, you take with like a, a, with a, a production gun. I mean, as an example, like a, like a 20 yard headshot, right. With a no shoot on it. Like that is no big deal with a rifle. That is a, I hope I don't fuck up target with a pistol. Yep. Like and, no then the, and then the other thing that's the that's the big challenge with it being in Talladega, like anyway. we know that 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 range has 15 bays. They every year that I've been to a Nationals year, the center bay is used for vendors. Um, so you're talking about it's a three day match, and that will be held on 14 bays. Um, so you're visiting le- averaging less than five bays a day yeah. um, for your Nationals. So that that's not all that appealing either. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you bring up something good though too, mentioning like the vendor space. So like on the CZ side of things, like I'm probably not going to have a booth at both matches because it, having four or five guys tied yeah. up for 12 days is just too much. Too much time out, yeah. out of the office, too much time traveling. So I'm sure there will be other vendors that were looking forward to be able to display. And then it really throws a wrench yeah. in there when you. Yeah, and, and USPSA was, I mean, like, required. they, well, I mean, like, they had a, they had to move the match. Um, now, I mean, like, there are people that are going to, have different opinions from me on on all of why they had to move the match, and they'll put blunt and say that well they never should have had it in Colorado in the first place, and all of that that nonsense. Um, and and we don't necessarily have to go into it, but at the same time, like them moving the match in June, like finding a facility that she's even willing to host a nationals, you're kind of you're kind of screwed at that point. Um, to me, this is because this is not really the first time that USPSA has been in a scramble situation to find a place to host a nationals. Um, and you, this is the, probably the worst time, given that their financials came out that they were in a pretty big deficit last year. But like at some point, like if there are no ranges, we it sounds like now we have lost Colorado, the Cameo yeah. Range. Uh, that is no longer an option to host USPSA nationals. And in my opinion, Talladega is not an appropriate range for nationals. Like with fi- only 15 bays, that, that is not appropriate. That is not big enough for a nationals. Uh, yeah, like the, it's, it, they're really nice facilities. The facilities are not just, there. It's just not big enough. Um, and so like if, if that's where we're at, then US, at some point, this opens up a huge can of worms. At some point, USPSA almost has to consider like, Hey, is there some land in the middle of the country somewhere that's fairly cheap that we can put bays up on uh, to where we could host our own nationals? And then we're not we're not at the whim of anybody, whether it's the government or 
uh, ranges, timing, or anything like that. Um, you know, I that that gets into a really deep, long conversation. That I know you guys don't want to get into tonight. I don't really want to get into it tonight. But like, at some point, it's like we almost have to start looking in that direction. Uh, in my opinion, I think it would be reasonable to start yeah. looking into that at, at least at some point. I, I mean, it's been discussed several I, times. I'm kind of surprised the they they haven't already, because you would have. You just you mm-hmm. you'd have a lot of control over exactly what your facilities were, as well as not being limited on like how early you know setup can start on stuff. Um, you'd probably you if if you did it right, you could probably turn a profit, possibly off of a nice uh, I, in a good area. I mean, uh, yeah, if if you. And, at least, at least a break even compared to paying. Yeah, and I don't know what they matches. pay the facility, sure like the what they're paying Talladega, uh, CMP, like to host. Like, what are their fees to host nationals there? I know, that, like, I know that like Cameo was a was a huge like they were they really wanted to have nationals there for a couple of reasons. Like, one, it is the best facility that I know of in the country. Um, I don't I don't know of a, a facility that comes close to that. Um, but it also was very cheap. Uh, it was basically like a per user uh, fee, which was like $20 or something like that. Like, I mean, like, don't quote me on the exact specifics of that, but it was, it was not a really high fee. Um, and so, like, you got a world-class facility and it didn't cost USPSA a lot mm-hmm. of money. Um, so, like like that was the huge draw to try to have it there. And so I, I wish it was still there. Like I, I'm sad about how, how things have turned out with, with that, because there won't be any more major matches at cameo in the future, uh, unless something changes. And that's that, that's a bummer because of what a nice facility it is. Yeah, it is really nice. Yeah. I was certainly looking forward to going out there. I mean, I hate that it moved. I understand why it moved, but it is. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a um, lot of responsible parties. The, that the one thing happen. that I want to like that I kind of want to clear up is like why did they have to move? Um, USPSA did not move nationals because they were made aware of a uh, of the mag restrictions. That that wasn't why they had to move nationals. They moved nationals because. The facility, uh, because of some publicity that was that was brought about, uh, and whoever gets the blame for that, you people can argue and figure that out for themselves. But the facility came to USPSA saying that any competitor that comes here has to sign an affidavit uh, saying that their all of their equ- equipment is within compliance. And USPSA, I think US, and I think USPSA was right at that point to say. Okay, yeah. no, you guys changed the you guys changed the deal on us a bit here. Um, we will not force our membership to sign these affidavits. Like we won't host a match where they have to sign some sort of affidavit like this. And so, because of that, we are going to move our match. Um, and so, like, like you can be pissed at USPSA as much as you want, and you can blame Troy or Jake. Probably not Troy's not getting much blame, but Jake and the BOD, whoever you want to blame. Um, once they were, 
once they were forced that they that the members were going to have to sign that affidavit, they had no choice but to move that match. Um, and everybody else that's mad about it, like that, like that they had a match there, like nobody was complaining about all the matches that have happened in Colorado since 2013, like the Rocky Mountain 300 that Jared was just at a couple of weeks ago. I promise you, 60-round stages, there are people using more than 15-round mags there. Uh, the Bighorn match where Infinity had their entire team there, uh, spo- like sponsoring their whole team there, like that. Nothing changed since then. Uh, all the other major matches that have happened in Colorado since in the last nine years, um, nobody was making a big ruckus about it uh, until, until somebody did. Hey, I'll have you know That's good. my production mags That's actually only hold 15 now. Um, so I, do you guys have any more on that? Like there's there's lots that we could discuss, but there's so much there's so much not solid information out there that I don't know that we need to discuss that much more. Yeah, but that's the that's why I I'm avoiding talking on it too much. Like obviously, I've got my own thoughts and disappointments and various things about it, but I don't know what's what yet. So I'd rather not spread speculation or what might be true. I mean, it's probably like most things. Both yeah. sides are saying one story, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, I don't doubt that a lot of things were handled poorly there and. Uh, I mean, it sucks that it has to move, but like, I probably wouldn't even be upset. Like, I'm not particularly tied to any, any range or, or anything like that, but like, I, I'm most pissed that they ruined like the product, the production pairing. I know that's well, something little to get hung up on, but it pisses me off and I probably won't go to nationals because of it. It's um, not even just the production pairing though. Like we were, you know. We were sold this great facility mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, it was going to have like 24 stops, I think, like over four days. And then, yeah, then we get a, basically an area match. So, I mean, that, that is, that is a disappointment. I really thought this year, like nationals was going to be the big yeah. grand thing. Yeah, that, that really is the, the big shame. Uh, because I, th- I think the match yeah. in cameo and would have go- been a really good, a really good match. Uh, I think it, I think it would have been pretty awesome um and that's that's a bummer uh i am overall just bummed with the sport right now just because like we like just the lack of leadership like like in the position that the sport is in like it is it is a huge bummer uh like it's it there's like this huge i don't know cloud whatever you want to call it over the sport um i'm somewhat sick of I'm somewhat sick of some of the people that are just like have absolutely nothing positive to ever add to the conversation like that. Like I'm kind of sick of those, those guys. Um, but I'm also sick. Of, I'm also sick of bad leadership too. Like, like I'm sick of that yeah, too. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, all I can, all I can say and hope is that people will like the, stay like stay in it hopefully for the long haul and hopefully this is a rough patch that we get past like that's all i can like and i'm just trying to hope and trying to stay positive for that as much as possible yeah yeah you, you said some good things there like it's the drama has gotten very old 
like the internet can get a little tiresome to read. And at the same time, oh, yeah. we've yeah. both been around long enough. Like we know plenty of it is well-earned. Yeah. But it's, it still gets old every day. Yep. So like on, on some yep, level, sure. I just want to shoot matches. Uh, and and I think that that can still somewhat, that can still happen. Like obviously like on the bright it, side, it, though. it is influencing some of the matches. Um, there has been a, the matches have been influenced, but, but for the most part, like you can go shoot your locals and still have fun doing what you've always done. Uh, you can go to your area matches, uh, your other level twos and still have fun well, shooting matches. Yeah. And that is, that is the bright side. It, whether, whether, wherever you fall on it, a lot of the board drama does not filter down too heavily to your yeah locals or your so with that being said i have some positives uh i did not attend the uh kentucky state match this year uh that leif kunkel um of gx holsters uh he was the match director for that and like he put he put a bunch of videos out there like how he's like sets up the matches and stuff like (laughs) i hope that he gets the recognition he does because like he is going to steps to make sure that his matches, like he, like from the stage design to the stage setup, like he's taking steps uh, to make sure that his matches are done really well. Uh, to even post production, like he had people send him videos, and he edited like a video of it that was like kind of like a hype video for the match, and it was awesome. It was like uh, I want to shoot this match next year because like that looks that looks great. Um, he's also in the middle of Bourbon Country, so why not go shoot a match there? Um, so like do what? I think I'll add that one next year. Yeah. It's, it's probably going to be on my schedule if I think at all I'll possible add that match for next year. year. It's a bit of a drive. I guess it's a ways to get out there, but, um, I definitely want to try to shoot it. Uh, so like Leif looks like he's doing a, just a bang up knockout job. Uh, so like, like I, I want to try to put as much like positive spotlight on people like that in the sport. Uh, also, we got to give a shout out to the Cornhusker Classic happened here this last weekend. And uh, I don't know if he's the Hit Factor's number one fan, but he's probably he might be in the top five. Uh, Billy McScrublord's pretty high up there. Like he reps. He I don't even, I don't actually know Billy's McScrublord's first name, even though I shot a match with him. I should remember that, but I don't. Uh, but. Uh, but C-class legend Camden Lee, uh, RO extraordinaire. He ROs like twenty matches a year. But uh, he actually is no longer C-class, but he is still C-class legend. But he won B-class. Actually, he would have won A-class too. But he won B-class uh, at the Cornhusker Classic. Is that was that the right? Is that the name of the match? Yeah. Yep, Corn- yeah. He was third and open Classic. overall. And I think he was uh, third uh, open as I've well. Given right. That, like. He had sent us video. He had sent me like videos privately earlier in the year, and I give him like so much crap about his videos. Uh, like, dude, have you ever dry fired in your life? And because his videos look like like he'd get up to a position, he's searching for his dot for like three seconds. I'm like, dude, like you cannot do that. Like you cannot be wasting time looking for a dot like that. And he started dry firing. At least he said, I don't know how much he was, but he started dry firing, and like I, it paid off. Like his it was a much, much improved match performance over 
what he had before. He also like he listens to the podcast religiously, so like there's like that's at least yeah. worth a five to ten percent bump in his match performance. Uh, and he was he has one of our hit factor hats, like so that's gonna help. Oh, easy. Yeah, yeah. He was wearing the hit factor hat. At he was the wearing match. it. He was wearing it at the match. Yeah, easily, easily. So that was um, so. That was probably another five like, percent. I I think, and then he's on the Discord, you know, pretty pretty consistently. So like, there's another five or ten percent. Like, we could easily talk in. It's. I mean, he got close. You know, like I'm, I mean, really, I'm shocked he didn't so win overall. Give him time, like a few more matches, and I think he'll be there. Uh, but I don't know, like if they're like. I don't know how you can give a bigger endorsement of the podcast and, and the discord and all that, like than like his performance. So like people should be paying attention. Like it's clearly going to do a lot for their match performance. Mm. Yeah. He was yeah. C class when he started. And he wasn't listening. even now he's taking third overall the level two. I'm just saying. It is a, like a very impressive increase in performance you know that brings up a good topic though have you guys noticed like a lot of newer people obviously get started in co these days have you noticed yeah how fast people are getting good nowadays like you're talking like a year and a half in and guys are like yeah i mean there's more information out there than there ever has been in the past as far as like training info uh there's more instructors there's more people teaching um stuff and so like that learning curve like when i got in it like there were there was very little material out there and it was mostly like you go on the range and you figure it out yourself um and you hope that you're doing what's right and like that is that is not the case for the the newer shooters coming out now. No, and I, I do think yeah. high cap and a dot probably helps those guys a lot as far as on the learning curve because it, it does it does make them it does make high cap makes figuring the game out a lot easier than starting with a low cap division. And the dot does yeah. If you pay attention to what yeah, the dot you, tells you, dot, you teach come you to in and learn target faster. focus from day one, right? Like you. you yeah. Yeah. Just for sure. Interesting observation. Right, Jeff, you have questions for us. Let's go. Yeah, let's just dive in. All right, so I'm just going to start with our oldest question and move up because uh, we've got some old ones. Okay, uh, I mean, this like one's if it's not from, do we want to say nature. who they're from or just answer them? Yeah. I don't, I don't think any of them are incriminating. This one's from old Billy from the <laughs> Scrub Lord. What's your threshold for bad weather environmental conditions when deciding whether to train or shoot a match? For example, I live in Washington and it rains a lot, so I just have to deal with it. Not a lot of snow, but I stop shooting when it gets down to 35-ish. I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I will say that depends a little bit. Like, End of the shooting season, winter starts getting here. I'm not really interested in going outside in 30-degree weather to shoot a match. Late winter, and it gets up to 30 or 40 degrees, and I've been in the house for two months, like, I'm ready to go shoot a match. I don't care that it's cold. As far as uh, rain and stuff, 
if it's like a light rain or looks like there might be a little sprinkling, I would still go out and train. But if it's going to be like a heavy downpour where you can't get anything productive done, I'm going to either go to the indoor range or just go home and dry fire. Uh, for me, training wise, um, Jeremy, I can be a little bit picky because I can kind of look at the uh, the week's forecast or the next 10 day forecast. And I can kind of just pick my days based on that. Um, like these look like the best days. And so like if it's not if it's not like right before a big match and like it's a really windy, which for me really windy is if it's getting over like 25 or 30 sustained, then there's just so much dirt in the air that it's just it's just not fun. If it's under 20, then I'll go shoot. Uh Rain is not much of a factor for me uh, where I live. Like, it's just like if it's going to rain that day, like usually it's only for like a thunderstorm blows up for like a certain time of the day, but it's usually not raining all day. So I can either go out before or after the rain if I have to. Um, and then, yeah, wintertime, I don't I don't I don't shoot a lot outdoors during wintertime uh whenever like early spring and i'm needing to train like i try to find parts of the day that are over 45 like like when it gets too much under 45 like then you're having to just be bundled up uh and putting on gloves kind of in between strings and stuff like that just to keep your hands warm like if your hands are like numb cold it's kind of pointless to try to train because you can't do a whole lot with it um so uh, you could say that i'm a bit of a fair weather a feather fair weather guy, but I, my, my situation is unique in that I work from home and my schedule is a hundred. I can change my schedule to fit whatever I need. It was like somebody like Jeff, like he has set days of the week that if he's going to train that week, he has to go then. And so it's a little harder for somebody like Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will have one more thing on the weather too, though. So if, uh, like my, forecast for a local match says it's going to rain like i'm still going because that is something that you will potentially have to deal with at a major so even if there's uh going to be some rain or something i'm still going to that match like i'll pack a rain jacket yeah so it's it's kind of an interesting question because he's talking about cold and rainy which is not weather that i have to deal with a lot here uh usually environmental factors are a little more similar to to Jeremy, but, um, you know, when the winter, like I don't, I don't really shoot in the winter. And so when it starts warming up, that's when I'm coming out of off season, uh, usually around the end of March is usually when it is beginning of April. So, I mean, I have to deal with cold just a little bit here and there at the beginning and maybe very end of the season. But other than that, not much. And, you know, I might tough it out on during those times. Like if I have a match coming up and I have to go shoot, you know, I haven't shot all all winter. I've got a major coming up. Okay, I'll go. I need to go shoot at least once or twice. You know, uh, that kind of deal. I'll I'll tough it to go shoot in the cold. But for the most part, the the season is nice weather. But uh, yeah, if it's if it's raining, like I don't I don't have bags, so I'm not gonna go out and just like make a bunch of soggy targets and still not to get to shoot. Um, now, if I know rain is coming, I'll still go to the range because the weather's unpredictable and 
I'll get there and maybe it blows over and doesn't even rain. So I don't, I don't necessarily depend on the, uh, the forecast. Um, I just, I play it like almost up to the hour. Uh, I'm at work. It's five o'clock. Is it raining? Okay. It's not raining. I'm going to the range. It doesn't really matter like how cloudy it is or, or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I'll go shoot as long as it's not pouring. If it's sprinkling, I'll shoot. It's raining a little bit. I'll shoot. But if it's going to destroy my targets, I'm not shooting. And the other factor that I deal with here is like Jeremy, I'm sure is heat. And I know a lot of people are not going to go shoot in the heat, but I mean, if it's a hundred degrees, I'm going to shoot. Uh, I, I won't let that stop me. So that's, that's probably what I deal with more here than, than rain or cold. It's going to, it's just going to be like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we, we've had a really, really hot, fucking hot spring and summer. Uh, here in Texas, so, yeah, where I'm at um, in the Panhandle, and so, yeah, like when I was training for those, like for nationals and stuff like that, uh, it was, yeah, it's 105, so you you still got to get out and suck it up. Uh, some days, if you can, you might go out earlier and where it's only 90, 95, and yeah. like it's just once it hits like 105, like that's Man, that that kind of heat is pretty oppressive, and I know the guys from Phoenix are kind of laughing at 105 because they live in 115 and 120. Um, but that it's pretty oppressive when it gets over like 105. But at the same time, it's kind of like you know what, like you can suck it up and sweating a little bit. It's not you're not going to kill you if you drink water. Yeah, and it's really like the heat is really only yeah. bad to me yeah. anyway when I first get out there, cause I work in an office. And so like you step out of the office, step outside and it's like, dear God, I'm going to die. But then like you're out there for a while, you start sweating, your body starts getting adapted and I can usually get a good training session. Yeah. And even if I'm covered in sweat, I mean, that's, that's just part of it. But. As much as I hate the heat, I can live with it. What gets annoying is when it's super humid also. It's like, you're sweating, but you like can't even keep your hands dry. Like you put, you know, wipe them off with a towel, put Pro Grip on, and like by the time you dry, yeah. You're luckily, dry, I don't have. I virtually never have to deal with that. I mean, unless it rained like that morning. Uh, otherwise, I don't have to deal with that. But yeah, I mean that that would be tough. Um, I'll say like sometimes I will pick. Uh, like I don't do this a lot, yeah. but sometimes it's, I will it's pick humid here. like the the worst part of the day to go practice, just from a like like I'd want to train in bad conditions a little bit. Um, I don't want to do that all the time, quite frankly. But sometimes I will I will choose to go out when it's yeah super hot, uh, or even like when it's blowing thirty miles an hour. Like I'm still gonna go out and and shoot uh, and 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 get some pre- training in. And just mm-hmm. trying to deal with it's, shooting no, I, well when the elements are, are bad. I, I do the same thing. Like training on a weekend or something, I don't try to go out at like 8 a.m. to beat the weather. Like I go out at a warmer part of the day because that's how it's going to be at matches. Like living in the Midwest like this, most of the majors I shoot are going to be hot and miserable. Yeah. And it's going to be way worse if you're yeah. not used to it. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say just to like overall answer the question, like try to go shoot in some weather that you don't want to shoot in, um, because actually it was Matt Hopkins. He he said this one year 
we were at a match and it was really cold. You know, it was like 35 degrees. It was raining. I think there was some snow here and there. And like everybody was complaining about, man, I'm just not shooting good. You know, he's like, well, you should go shoot in the cold sometimes. Shoot in the cold. Maybe you'll shoot better in the cold. (laughs) It's like, hey. So now I try not to be a bitch. And if it's cold, I go ahead and go shoot. Basically, yeah. as long as you can be productive and there's value in the time you're doing it, then it's time well spent. There you go. Okay, next question. Um, there's a little bit of front part of this question, but the actual meat of the question is, what are your thoughts on having classifiers at major matches other than nationals? Uh, personally, I would rather not see them at like level twos and level threes. I don't uh, really... Like I would, I would rather see more originality at those matches than that. Um, that's just that's just like my kind of. I haven't like thought deeply about that, but like that's kind of my initial reaction. I would rather, I would rather they not be there. Yeah, I don't really care to see them either, just because if you've shot very long, you've probably shot a lot of the classifiers, and some of them are so old that they're just not all that interesting probably weren't interesting when they were new so i don't i don't see that it brings any value to the match other than takes away a stage that could be original yeah same i i don't necessarily think they're a great idea at at matches other than new ones at nationals um yeah that's about it Next question. Good. Anything else on that one? Okay. In y'all's opinions, what makes a stage challenging to M's and GM's? Um, what have you come across that has stood out to you in terms of stage setup? All right, let's hear it. Anybody want to go first? I'll go first. Um, okay, so for me, um, like I'm usually focused on shooting a pace, I guess. Um, I want to. I want to go with speed. So shots that that slow me down and make me feel like I'm taking too much time. So obviously, like a really hard shot is really hard for anybody. But in my mind, that is one thing that I really feels like slow me down. Like you know, 15 yard, 20 yard zebra, something like that. Really difficult for me uh, mentally. It's difficult mentally to shoot that target and not feel like I'm doing something wrong. Also, something that really throws me off and makes me drop a lot of points, this this could just be specific to me, but um, is like um, positions where I'm shooting not in a normal stance. So like a lean, a squat, um, anything like that, where it's just like I'm probably going to drop more points than I should because there's this one little factor that's throwing me off. Um, those things. So it's just like anything that you can, you can add to the shot. That's kind of going to distract me mentally from what's going on is, is difficult for me. I, I would say typically the stuff that can make it more of a challenge is without making it a challenge without making it dumb is the type of stuff, instead of having like four targets in an array that are all at the same distance and height, is when there's some variation there. So especially when there's something that you want to shoot really fast, 
and then you instantly need to transfer to some, or transition to a target that's going to take more time. So that that's the kind of stuff that those targets themselves are not hard to shoot, but that is some separation room is how fast you transition that gun to a harder target, or especially whenever, uh, let's say like you have a 15 yard mini popper and they in two wide open five yard burner targets. That's the kind of stuff that can add challenge, but none of those shots themselves are ungodly difficult. And then also making sure that the transitions aren't all like one foot apart. Like it doesn't mean every single target needs to be a 180 degree transition, but when there's just, there's more room to separate the field and that stuff. And those are the harder skills to be better at when a lot of stuff requires you to speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. I'm going to, I'm going to be a, I don't know if this is a, um, a grumpy grandpa answer, but like, I don't really like the question because I don't, I don't like the, the sense that, Oh, I'm going to build a stage. that's really going to get or really challenge these. I'm going to make these GMs slow down. I'm going to make these guys be slower and I'm going to make them mess up. Um, I don't like if you want to challenge a GM, like GMs, like literally El Prez will challenge GMs because they're going to see, like they're going to try to go as fast as they possibly can on El Prez trying to do it in under four seconds, right? Like they will be challenged by like, like shooters are going to challenge themselves. Luckily with our sport, it's, it's points divided by time. So like shooters are always going to challenge themselves no matter what it is. Um, and the GMs are going to be challenged by other GMs and the pace the other GMs shoot. Um, so I don't love that question because, like, if you're like, well, what's going to challenge a, a GM? Well, a 40 yard mini popper is going to challenge GMs and Master Cloud. Like, they're going to be challenged. Like, to hit, like that's going to be tough for them to hit, uh, like, consistent. Like, you put, I can put an array of eight mini poppers out there. That's going to really challenge these GMs. Well, yeah, it challenges the, yeah, they're going to struggle. Like, it's going to be hard for them, but like, it's going to destroy the B and C class shooters. Like, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be screwed. Uh, so to me, it's more of like what inch, what makes an interesting stage for a GM and an, and an M class shooter? Because those guys are like, the guys that are good, like, they're going to be able to pull off anything that's, if you have any sort of reasonable amount of shooting, like, it's not necessarily a, a challenge for them. It's what's interesting for them. So, like, interesting is setting up some sort of mover sequence, uh, which, like, and, like, I think I think we've some – I think while our national matches have kind of moved a little bit towards making the target on the swinger hard, like, and trying to make that – like, the year that they had, like, a, a zebra on a, a single-pass swinger, right? Uh, like, and so like trying to do that to make it interesting. Well, I would ra- personally, I would rather see something where you have like just a moving target that like basically is only hidden when it's at, like when it's before it's activated and then it's wide open, but you have other targets to engage in the, in the meantime, and it's matter. Okay. How many targets am I going to try to engage and where am I going to try to engage it type thing? And, uh, it's, it's just a, it's a pure decision. Uh, from that point of of what do you think you can do ahead of time, and then can you pull that off during the actual stage? Um, so I, I would I would like to see that question posed more of what is interesting to those guys and what makes an interesting stage. And Jared's right in the like speed changes, like slow to fast and fast to slow. Like 
like that those that's interesting um that's much more interesting than yeah. just all 20 yard targets or all five yard targets um having having those speed changes within a position or within a stage uh makes yeah. those stages more interesting I, I do like what you're saying about reworking the question because you basically by reworking the question you're answering kind of what i was getting at and i didn't think of it from that standpoint is is that none of those shots individually should yep. be something that the average guy can't hit with no time limit. And you, and you start talking like a 40-yard mini popper, if you put 10 of them out there, I'm not going to go 10 for 10. Like, I don't – I mean, I'm sure somebody out there Oh, can. you put three of them out there. Like, and most, 10 most for 10 top GMs are like, man, I hope, I hope I've got about- a few extras in the gun to uh, – like, they're not going to plan on going three, uh, three for three on 40-yard mini poppers. No, but, you know, another great example that we're talking about the swinger. So, you know, putting partials on the swinger can mm-hmm. can make the swinger exceptionally difficult to just shoot in general. But if you take that, if you take an open swinger and make it where it's only available when it's, you know, up and it's, it's blocked both times, you can't trap it down. That makes it a much more difficult swinger to take in one pass. But yeah. every shooter on that stage can yeah. get two hits on that swinger. In a reasonable yep. time, if I like it. it. Yeah, what, and like Jeremy was saying, what if it's going to be a good stage? If it's going to be an interesting stage for a GM, it's going to be an interesting stage for all shooters. So thinking of it from like the level yeah. of the shooter, I don't think is a is a great wording. I think you're absolutely correct. Next question, Jeremy. There you go. Got, got a couple different types of answers there. Um, hold on. Um, we, we already answered this one. I mean, it's, it's a different question, but you basically just answered it. So, um, let's see. Okay. How often do you practice scenarios like table starts, reloading from the table, prop manipulation, seated starts, prone shooting, etc.? It seems pointless to dedicate serious time resources to something that doesn't seem to show up often or affect your stage time by that much. Okay, I'll go first. I don't think I've ever practiced prone shooting. But at the end of the day, shooting is shooting. So we'll have sites pull the trigger back. It's not something you're going to see a ton. Um, as far as like table starts and table loads and stuff, I'm sure I've probably done them in live fire at some point in time. But that's something that I'll work occasionally in dry fire because it is something you see enough that you need to be comfortable doing it. But even then, it's something I probably do if I see it's something, I'm going to see it to match. So it's kind of like weekend shooting. I'm not generally going to train weekend shooting, but if I flip through the Area 3 matchbook and see a weekend stage, like I'm going to put some time in on the weekend to make sure I'm comfortable. And same thing with seated starts. Like that stuff that can be worked out in dry fire as far as the motions of it. Because once you're, once you're up with the gun in your hand, the shooting's the same as what you're always. Uh, yeah, for me, like without going into like these, like all the specific stuff, um, I will like if I have a match coming up and they announce the match, but usually a couple weeks out, uh, uh, I'll go through and look at it and see if like are like there's four unloaded starts. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna practice the unloaded some unloaded starts uh, between now and the, the match. Um, so stuff like that, yeah. It's it's to me, it's more of as it's coming up, 
uh, in a match, I will practice it. I don't, I don't put a, a ton of dedication towards that stuff. Uh, prone, as we've talked about before, I don't go prone. If like, I haven't seen a port that I like that I have to go prone on. Um, <laughs> and so I fold myself up like Gumby and I bend over and I'll shoot with the gun upside down. I don't care. I'm not going prone. <laughs> uh, strong and weekend. I actually, if there's any, uh, if there's any chiropractors that would like to help Jeremy out. Cause I don't know if it's a chiropractor or <laughs> sure like, be up that. I don't know, like yoga. I don't know. Probably need something, <laughs> but yeah, I don't go prone. Um, and, and so far it hasn't, I don't, I don't feel like I have been at a competitive disadvantage from how I approach low ports. Um, strong and weekend are things that I, I train f- on a yeah. fairly consistent basis, not huge amounts, but I do train those on a, just a consistent basis. Uh, cause I kind of enjoy doing, doing one handed shooting and one handed manipulations. So I do those. Yeah. Um, okay, so I kind of feel like he answered the question within the question. Um, it seems pointless to spend time on these things when you don't see them very often, and they're, they're uh, they usually don't make up a ton of percentage, even on the stage that they are in. Like I've, I think I I can think of a couple stages. They're like one of those things had a large effect on the hit factor, uh, but for the most part, no. I just want to make sure that I can sit down and stand up quickly and I can lay down quickly. Like that's so basically just make sure I'm mobile. That's all I really care about. Uh, there's nothing special about standing up from a chair. And I mean, there's a little bit special about going prone, but again, how often do you see it? Jeremy never does it. So no, I don't practice it. I don't know that I've ever practiced going prone and I never, I've never shot a stage where I'm like, man, I wish I would have done more prone shooting because usually yeah. everybody sucks about the same. Uh, as far as all like the tables and reloads from tables and stuff, I just make sure that my gun manipulations are on point. I'm not necessarily practicing from a table or anything like that, but you know, make sure that like my fine motor skills, like I can put the mag in the gun and rack the gun. Uh, I, I will say like sure for table starts, like I That's do think it. there's like, there's some different uh, ways to approach like how you pick the gun up on a table start, like especially if the gun's loaded or unloaded. And so like that's worth spending some time uh, figuring mm-hmm. out like what works, like how you want to pick it up. Like, are you using the left hand to, to scoop the gun? Like, like, so if you, if you're new to the sport and you don't yeah. know how you want to do that, uh, then you should spend some time in dry fire figuring out like, what is the most efficient way for you that you can feel like you can get a consistent grip. So they're like for table starts and stuff like that. They're like, at least do it enough that you have a technique that you feel confident in. Yeah. And and a big chunk of that is what's more important there is that you're comfortable doing it when you see it. I mean, you don't have to train it much to be comfortable. Oh yeah. What Jeremy said. What Jeremy said, a hundred percent. Like, you don't have to practice them, but yeah, know know what you're gonna do. Basically, I like it. Good answer. Okay, next question. 
Okay, why do people call to get rid of existing divisions for the fear they are diluting the sport, but want to create new divisions that will actually dilute the current divisions? Why the extreme hate for revolver at matches? Does the one or two people shooting it make the match go that much slower? Yeah, yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) I would say the bigger thing is like, to all of us, anyways, this is a competition. It's about competing. We got to compete against as many people as possible. And the there's just so many divisions now. Like, if you go to an award ceremony, it takes like an hour to go through all the divisions and categories and everything. At the end of the day, a lot, a lot of divisions are very underrepresented. So I think we need to be very careful about deciding to add divisions. And I think that sometimes the divisions really aren't shot anymore. So why do they exist? Like limited 10. I mean, and they only shoot at nationals because it's another national title to add to your collection. Um, uh, My, like my response Mm -hmm. to this, I I don't mean to cut you off Jared. If you weren't, if you weren't done. Uh, uh, My response to this is, is kind of, um, I feel like maybe my generation kind of like, as a kid, like I was on the tail end of like participation trophies and there's this sense of if everybody's special, then nobody's special. Like, and that's something our society has, I think has lost like in that we have to try to make, like we're given Super Bowl. Like I see, I have friends that have kids, you know, and like they win like a little league T-ball thing and they're getting like these rings that look like Super Bowl rings. Right. Like, and it's like, I don't, I don't mean to be a fuddy duddy, but like, come on, like it's T-ball, like give them like the super cheap little trophy that like, like, and so like, I feel like that's where we're at with our division and our sport a little bit. Like whenever you're awarding national championships to everyone, like then, then the ones that do actually matter, those have been lessened. Like, so whoever's winning, Carry Optics is probably going to be very well attended this year. Like whoever wins Carry Optics Nationals, well, guess what? That national title is the same as the guy winning uh, L10. Um, and I'm not I'm not picking on Mason, but th- there were there were Mason was competing against a very very small field there to win that, whereas the guy winning Carry Optics is competing against a very big deep field, and uh, like. So at some point, like we're we're cheapening the guys who are who are winning those national titles that mean a lot, and that's to me that's a bit of a shame. Um, Jeff, I I mean the the more divisions you have, it is it just dilutes it dilutes the sport. Like like they're saying, there's divisions that are less populated, they they don't hold as much weight. You spread people out, and now we have we create a new division. Everybody flocks to it. So now we have this way overpopulated division, and all the other divisions are suffering. Uh, I, got, I think the best approach is to to not do either, or would have been to not do either, to add or remove divisions. But uh, I, I mean, people get upset about it because people have feelings about it. I don't, I don't really know another way to answer that. But yeah. uh, well. I do think 
we could combine some divisions. Like, I don't really want to keep anybody from from shooting what they like to shoot right now. Like, I don't know. I don't want to kill somebody's division. But we could combine like three divisions and everybody still be able to shoot exactly what they shoot now. And just call it one division. Like, I'd, I'd be all for something like that. Uh, and I don't really want to kill Revolver. I think it's classic. But I, again, I don't really. It, it's a weird one. But. The other one thing that I would add to it is I like I am hundred percent in favor of keeping divisions around for level one exceptions, right? Or even having even if there were more divisions for level ones, like like I don't want to open up this can of worms, but like the single action carry optics division that that that's the, like that's the hot that's the hot button topic right now. Like if they made that and said we're we're allowing this at level ones, like okay. Like that's what they sh- if they had done that with carry optics when they first started carry optics, that would have at least given them like some decent data to vet out the division and what should this division look like before now we're five years into it and we're kind of stuck with a division that's kind of sucky. Like it, like it, like I don't think anybody shooting carry optics now is like thinks that the rules are what they should be, what they should have been when they first set it up. Uh, at least I don't talk to too many people. So like, like PCC, like keep that as a level one exception. Like if people want to come out and shoot their PCCs, let them come out for that. Outside of level ones, they're standalone matches. Um, if you like, if we're gonna kill, if we're gonna kill revolver, okay, there's still guys that you know every once in a while they want to shoot that at their local match. Let them come out and shoot at their local match. Like that's fine. Um, I'm all for making the level ones as accessible to as many people as they want to. Um, us. Yeah, but level ones already are. Like, you can... Yeah, well, I mean, revolvers you are can already production shoot your revolver in, yeah. like, production, I think. You can already shoot your... Yeah. You can shoot your, your single-action CO gun and open. Like, on a, on a level yeah. one match, I don't think it really matters. The argument people will make is it's not competitive. But... If you're choosing to use that equipment, then, and you're the only one shooting the division, then yeah, what what does it matter uh, if it's not competitive? Like, if there's no one to shoot against. Yeah, I, I think I think the uh, the thing that people don't want to hear is that they honestly need to hear is it's not that what you're shooting isn't competitive; it's you that you're not Jeff. competitive. Yeah. Just show up and shoot. Could happen. Yeah. They need to be told. I mean, someone that's really good with a revolver is probably going to be quite competitive with the production guys in their area. There's going to be some times where they give up a lot because of the way the loads work out or something. But I mean, he's going to I mean, Poggi's going to be probably load his revolver plenty around quick. 80% of like if if production and revolver nationals are the same match he's going to be around 80 percent of the match winner yeah yeah Yeah. which means he would still be quite competitive probably in his local matches with it nice question all right let's do one more one more uh okay i'm gonna skip a couple and get to this one what does your current dry fire space look like? How far are the targets? What size? Uh, what would be a better setup for you? 
what is not amendable to a common dry fire space? Amenable, amenable. I don't know that word. Uh, to dry fire space, ten yards run, ten yard runs, for example. All right. So my dry fire space is uh, so my house is a split entry. So you know half of my bottom level is a garage, the other half's a room. And it has a bathroom in one corner of it. Otherwise, I have that entire room to work with. So it's probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 feet wide by like 30 feet long, probably. And around the outside walls, around the outside of the house walls, it has a ledge at about three foot from the foundation. So I use, I commonly use that to place targets. It works out to a fairly good level. Easy to move stuff around, easy to put a target up there to make a no-shoot or something along those lines. And then I have a variety of different dry fire targets. So I have stuff with hardcover on it. I have IPSC targets, USPSA targets. I have sixth size and third size and half size, as well as some of the fake poppers and plates and stuff. And I'll often move stuff around. And more importantly, I'll leave a bunch of targets up that I'm also like transitioning by and just ignoring but what, what I wouldn't want to work with in my dry fire space is, like, no room to do any movement. Like, you don't need 30 yards of movement, but you need enough space to actually move a little bit. That's not just, like, one step. Like, I wouldn't want to dry fire in my reloading room here. There's just, I have 10 feet from wall to wall or whatever. Do you use any props or anything? Uh, I have a table and a chair. And I have a barricade that I've made out of just a target stand with uh, a couple of targets on it. But I've also cut out the A-zone on those targets to use them as ports. Nice. Uh, my, my dry fire, I, I dry fire in my shop, uh, which is filled with tools and other stuff. Um, so I don't have like just a dedicated dry fire space. And so I have kind of a small space where I can move around. Uh, I can kind of put targets anywhere on the wall, but... I've, honestly, like my targets are kind of like they're taped to the wall, and they they mostly stay where they're at. I'll move I'll move some around every once in a while. For the most part, I just pick different uh, different orders to uh, engage engage the targets. Um, I wish I had a little bit more room for movement. Like I can make a like a probably like three quick steps, um, but I don't really have much room to like like really get up to very much speed at all, uh, moving forward or backwards. Very, I don't have much room to move forward or backwards, some kind of, and then I have a little bit of room to move sideways. Um, it, it's basically enough room that you get a load done in that, that space that I have to move and not, not much more. So I would, I would like to have more than that. I just don't have the, aside from trying to take over my garage, uh, and and doing it there, um, which then you're you're moving cars out and stuff like that. I'm I'm kind of to me a garage is for cars to go in, and I try to make sure that we can still put cars in the garage, and I don't fill that space up with other stuff. So uh, mine is fairly simple from that standpoint. Um, I think ideally, like you see, like what uh, Casey Reed has set up uh, when he's making his his online coaching deal. Like he's got a room that has like rubber pet like the whole floor is covered in rubber pads 
right? And it's basically like a room that's dedicated to dry fire. And it looks like it's, you know, at least 20 feet by 20 feet or something like that. And that those measurements could be wrong, but um, something like that would be pretty, would be nice. But I just don't, I don't have that. Yeah. So well, I just moved. So my dry fire now is different than where I moved about a little over a year ago. But my dry fire now is is different than it has been all the way up until now. Um, so in the past, it, it was a room that was probably about 20 feet by 10 feet, um, maybe 12 feet. Uh, so basically, I could just run back and forth long ways uh, doing stuff that way. And there was a there was like a couch in there and a gun safe and mm-hmm. uh, some bicycles. So, I mean, it was... It was a little cramped in there, but I was able to get some good training done in there. And and I've always just used like pretty small dry fire targets up until I moved here. Where I've used some some larger ones, you know, lay them on the ground or set them up on a shelf to to practice some softer exits or something like that. Um, but when I moved here, I took over the garage. That was my my that is my dry fire area. So, you know, there's some, there's some shelves on the walls, so it's a little smaller, but it's probably somewhere around 20 by 20, maybe 25 by 25, something like that. Um, it's a pretty big space. Uh, I've got all my workout stuff out there as well, but I have lots of room, lots of room to, uh, move around. And I still pretty much use majority of like, uh, the smaller dry fire targets. I don't know. I guess I do have a pretty good mix here. Uh, at the last house, I had really small ones, but here I've got a pretty good mix. Full size, uh, third scale, six scale, spread out just all over, all different heights, um, all different distances, uh, very random. I try to set things up very random. Like I don't I don't like putting things like anything at the, the same height. Uh, I don't know. It's just something I like to do. Uh, at my last house, I had <clears throat> I had a space on the wall that I just called it my transition matrix. And I basically stood there and I took pasters and I tried to place them as randomly as possible. Like I tried to make a, a patch of pasters on the wall that was probably like three foot by three foot. Uh, and they were probably all, you know, five inches, six inches apart. And I tried to make it where there was no pattern no distinguishable pattern in the pasters. It's really difficult actually. Um, but that was, uh, that was something that I used a lot. And so I have something similar to that here. Uh, I've come up with some other transition type drills. I use a lot of pasters for like transition type drills. Uh, so I'll just use a single paster. Uh, I do have a, a barrier that I created from just like a target stand piece of cardboard. I'll move that around. Uh, put fault lines down, you know, to come in and stop at. Uh, and it's set just high enough to where I have to, like, I can squat and shoot underneath it. Uh, so I'll do that sometimes. Um, and then my other prop that I use is it's a concrete floor in there. So when I want to practice a whole bunch of reloads, I have a box. And it has an old sleeping bag in it. And I'll I'll practice reloads if I'm going to do, like, three three pouches back in a row. I'll practice over the box and work around the box. I have a couple of drills I've come up with to use that uh, to get a lot of different maneuvers in. So 
think that's pretty much it. I've got some tape on the ground because it's concrete floor. I've got tape boxes for shooting positions. I have a taped out agility ladder. Uh, you haven't built any swingers yet. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it all. You need to get forget. you I need do. to get to Jay's level. No, you can I build like full on stages so lazy. in your garage. I know, I do. <laughs> Uh, if I had the stall mats to cover my garage floor, that that would be legit. I do also have a shooting box. Until you said that, I forgot. I built one out of PVC just to use for dry fire. Nice. But yeah, I think I think that's everything. I do need a swinger though, real bad. Maybe not right. like a full size like stage style swinger like Jay has, but. One of those dry fire swingers something, would be, I, you know, something I need to get that one of those swings those or moves. Cool. Yeah, I haven't ever done Yeah, that, I've been saying were, that, that too. One of those would be pretty neat. The, the dry fire, I mean, that's like that, like that, like everybody's different. Like they're, yeah, they're set, like setup. there's lots of people that like they dry fire and they just, they don't even use dry fire targets. They just use like outlets, uh, you know, just random marks that they have like in pictures on their house or. Something like that. Like it's just yeah. anything that they can pick as a like, like that that is an aiming point. Then they'll just use that for dry fire. And I think that I think there's actually some some good validity to to doing it like that. Um, and like everybody's everybody does a little bit different. So try to be creative. Use what space you have available to you, and uh, find ways to work within it. So yeah, and yeah. Also, don't forget when it comes to dry fire. You can do dry fire on the range while you're live fire training yeah. as well if you want to work Good something tip. specific without using ammo. Yeah. Yeah, I've used plenty of, of light switches and even like uh, mm-hmm. like a divider on like a garage door or like a piece of trim. Like it's not a good transition point like, um, you know, vertically because it's long, yeah. but horizontally, yeah. just like getting where you can stop on it. That works as well. So just get creative. Yeah, or I actually buy some dry fire targets. Shop, They're the pretty Binsager cheap. Pro Shop. Uh, and there's there's lots of different options out there for those nowadays. Yeah. I don't think I bought any yeah. for my I mean, first that, they two weren't years. available when I was. I just like cut first them out five or six years I was in it. And so, yeah, I just cut them out. They were kind of. Oh my! I mean, the ones I cut out were like weird shape. Like they were like, it's like I think this kind of looks like a turtle target, and it's just kind of a weird random amoeba shaped target, right? And it was fine. It was good enough. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Very non-symmetrical. For for the grand scheme of things, though, and what everything costs these days, like no more than dry fire. Yeah, I mean, like, cost, it's worth adding. I, a yeah, I would definitely like if I was starting new again now. Uh, I would, I would buy the dry fire targets. Like, it's just so much easier, like, than trying to cut them out of of cardboard. Um, and and they're scaled. Yeah. Like, I, I, that's the nice thing about the dry fire targets is they are scaled. So you can know, okay, this is a third scale target. So if I have it at 10 feet, well, that's simulating a 10 yard target. And so you can kind of, you can know that uh, by knowing what scale those targets are at. 
um, kind of what you're simulating, which is which is kind of good, kind of nice, I think sometimes. Is it is it weird that no, I have I don't think I don't think that's necessarily never weird. Done that. uh, but like 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 you were talking like about never, how you you always dry fire with like pretty small targets. Um, I tend to I tend to do the same as well with some pretty small targets. Um, yeah. And so then like I sometimes like did the math on that. It's like I'm like simulating trying to hit like literally like 50 or 60 yard targets like what what is simulated and the but the problem is is that like like if you're doing that and you're <laughs> trying to run some sort of part like decreasing part time then at that point like you're you're getting to where you're accepting visually uh yeah just hits on brown because the target's so small that you can't really stabilize in the a zone and so you're getting used to visualizing i mean you're just visually just yeah. anywhere on target is good enough um rather than being precise on finding the middle of it um so like i i do think at some point like making them so small that they're so hard like you can maybe kind of get in your head a little bit that way like i have some of mine that are on the wall like i've taken a uh a black sharpie around the a zone because that's the other nice thing about the the dry fire targets that like the a zones are marked and stuff and the C zones and stuff too. But like I've taken like a Sharpie and just outline the A zone. That way I have a visual confirmation there. Okay. I actually am aiming at the A zone. I don't have all the targets like that, but I have like one or two like that just to kind of make sure that you know where the A zone's at and are you being yeah too sloppy or, or too accurate even should you, should you, could you be faster? You know, that reminds mm-hmm. me of something Ben posted the other day about like putting marks on the target, right? Yeah. And, and and that can be something else you can do with your dry fire targets. If you see you have a hard time looking to a specific spot, like mark a couple targets with a paster or something. That way it's just it's a reference point. You shouldn't do it all the time. Yeah. But it's a good reference point for where you're aiming. Where you need to aim. Where yeah. you need to look, getting your eyes to the right spot. All good stuff. All right, boys. That's been a been a good chat. We got through a bunch of questions, which is good. We probably still have a bunch of other questions. Um, but if any if anybody has any questions, send them to us. Uh, we do. If you're on the Discord. Um, we have a chat just for that. Uh, otherwise, send it to us. Email it to us. Get us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, or anything like yeah. that. Um, we respond much better to the Discord stuff, but we will we will try to make sure we respond to anything on. Instagram or Facebook or anything like that. Yeah. So links, links to everything will be in the description as far as uh, the media pages. Also a link to how to get into the discord. Um, also today's episode, as we mentioned before, was sponsored by shooters connection. So be sure you guys hit their link. It'll be in the description. Uh, shooters connection. They sponsor a lot of matches for us. So, uh, be sure and support them. Their Shooters Connection is run by competitive shooters, um, and they're, they're shipping stuff out fast. And they're supporting uh, not just matches, but they're supporting us. They're supporting the podcast, uh, which is a, another part of this sport and this industry. So support them. Support us. Hit the link. Uh, Appreciate it. Anything else, fellas? Weller Antique tonight. It's pretty good. Oh, nice.
Penelope, four grain. Buffalo sweat, vanilla bean oh. stout. Or vanilla cream stout, sorry. Oh, nice. I think I've had that one. I really like it. Awesome. It's a brewery out of like Wichita, I think. All right. Yeah. Nice. Peace. Peace. Oh, stop recording, damn it. <laughs>